you would open your Bibles to Psalm 38. We took a break last week when uh, Jason Montgomery was here and preached for us from Acts and helping us see Isaiah 49 fulfilled in that, and that was beautiful and good for us to hear, but now we get back on track with our psalms. So I'm thankful again to be able to preach from the Psalter this morning. So as you're turning uh, your Bibles to Psalm 38, I want to bring your attention to the type of psalm we will be reading this morning. This is a penitential psalm, or a psalm of confession. This is one of the five penitential psalms in the Psalter. We have already read through Psalm 6 and Psalm 32, and now come to Psalm 38. This psalm is anticipatory. What I mean by that is that David is going to recount his iniquities and recount um, what he is experiencing from the Lord because of his iniquities, and he is going to be anticipating the forgiveness of God. And he can do that because of being in covenant with God. And so this morning, as we anticipate the forgiveness that God gives us, uh, it was only fitting for us to read Psalm 24 in the beginning, sing Psalm 130, and have Joel lead us in a psalm of confession. I think that was God's providence, and it was beautiful how he knitted all these things together. So let's go to the Word of God. Psalm 38, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning. For my sides are filled with burning, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. My heart throbs, my strength fails me, and the light of my eyes, it also has gone from me. My friends and companions stand aloof from my plague, and my nearest kin stand far off. Those who seek my life lay their snares. Those who seek my hurt speak of ruin and meditate treachery all day long. But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you... O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord my God, who will answer. For I said, only let not rejoice over me who boast against me when my foot slips. For I am ready to fall, and my pain is ever before me. I confess my iniquity. I am sorry for my sin. But my foes are vigorous. They are mighty, and many are those who hate me wrongfully. Those who render me evil for good accuse me because I follow after good. Do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me, O Lord, my salvation. Hear the word 
of God. As we read through Psalm 38, and as I mentioned, it was a penitential psalm, what that means is that this psalm is a psalm of confession. We see David laying it out for us really clearly here in these 22 verses. And so I'm going to try to break it down as best as I can. And what I see clearly revealed to us in Scripture is that there are two sections of this psalm. Verses 1 through 12 and verses 13 through 22. Almost split right in half. And as we look at these two sections, you're going to see in verses 1 through 12 the consequences for David's sin. Really clearly, it's going to break down the consequences for David's sin. And then in verses 13 through 22, what we're going to see is we're going to see how David responds to the consequences of his sin or how David responds amidst the discipline of God. That's what we have before us, laid before us this morning in Psalm 38. And in these two sections, in verses 1 through 12, we are going to see the four consequences of sin that David lays out. These realities of discipline, they're going to be the theological, the physical, the spiritual, and the social. And then when we move to verses 13 through 22, we're going to see the three responses amidst discipline, which will be waiting, confession, and petitioning our God. So then let us jump in to the consequences of sin that we see in verses 1 through 12. But before we can do that, we have to talk about the superscription that we read in Psalm 38. So in Psalm 38 in your Bibles, you probably have something like a title uh, in the beginning. That's actually not inspired, okay? Uh, that is a, an editing that is done by the translators of your Bible. But then you have this superscription, which I would, um, I would debate is inspired. This is part of scripture. And it says, a psalm of David for the memorial offering. However, your translations might say something different. Your translation might say something like, to bring to remembrance, so we have to struggle with this right off the get-go. Um, we have to try to think through what does it mean for the memorial offering or um, to bring to remembrance. And I want to say that I think both of these things are giving us the same sentiment. So what we see is either happening here is that David is making a memorial offering for God to remember the covenant. He's trying to make a, a memorial offering so that God would remember the covenant. And it's not that God would forget, okay? This, this memorial offering is not because God needs to be reminded, but in the Old Testament, remembering was when God acted. That's the language that they would use. So we have this idea of either David is trying to do a memorial offering calling God to act, or we have David here to bring to remembrance, which would actually be for him to remember how God acted when he was sinning. It was to remind himself, this is what you do when you have sinned. This is how you remember how great your God is, how you waited for him. Okay, so there's that. We can move on from the superscription and get into the word. We'll see right from the get-go, the very first word used in verse 1 is Yahweh. 
right? That's O Lord. That's the all caps you see of O Lord in your Bible. And if you're using the LSB, which I know a few of you are, you'll see Yahweh right there in the very beginning. The very first thing that comes out of David's mouth is Yahweh. He's talking about the covenantal name of God. This is what the Israelites would use to describe God, specifically understanding him in covenant. God made a covenant with his people. So David begins, O Yahweh, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Okay, so we see right from the get-go, David calling on the covenantal name of God. We also see right from the get-go that David is experiencing the rebuke and discipline of God. He's experiencing rebuke and discipline of God. And I want you to see, and you've already heard, that David doesn't actually say, God, don't rebuke me, don't discipline me. Those words never come out of his mouth. In fact, David understands and is okay with being rebuked and disciplined by God because it's good. But what David is calling out about is the anger and the wrath in which could be poured out on him in which no man, no mere man, could ever stand. So we have here in this rebuke and discipline your first category of a consequence of sin. And that is there are theological consequences for sin. God is rebuking and disciplining David. God is rebuking and disciplining David. And these are things that he's expecting and actually wanting. So a consequence of sin is that God would discipline you. You should expect it and you should want it. Now there's two different types of kind of understanding this. There's one as a born-again Christian and being discipled and disciplined by God, being rebuked by God. And then there is someone who is outside of Christ, who is not in covenant with God. And the reality of that anger and wrath is that that is your consequence for sin. And that anger and wrath, if you are outside of Christ, will be quenched for an eternity as you are punished for your sin. But I'm getting ahead of myself Why don't we turn to Hebrews? Hebrews is a good place to turn into the New Testament to understand this idea, this theological category of discipline. And where we typically go, and we will, will be Hebrews 12. And there we understand the discipline that God gives those whom he loves. But before that, we have to understand the why. Why would God give us discipline? And for that, we turn to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse 7. We hear this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways as I swore in my wrath. They shall shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. 
Okay, so here's a groundwork that we're laying for the discipline of God. If there was no discipline of God, then we would be overcome by our own sin. In fact, we would want it so much that it would begin to harden our hearts. And we saw with those stubborn people uh, in the wilderness that for 40 years they saw God leading them, feeding them uh, by a cloud and by fire. And even in that, these people would not follow God. And because of that, they did not enter God's rest. And so we see God actually disciplines us out of love that our heart would not become deceived and hardened by sin. And that's when we go to Hebrews 12. We go to Hebrews 12 because not only would it keep our hearts from becoming hardened and deceived by sin, but discipline from God actually helps us grow in holiness and be more conformed to the image of God. Here, the author of Hebrews in verses 4 through 11. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Here he's quoting from Proverbs 3. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which we have all participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share in holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. We see from the get-go, David is being disciplined for sin. And I want you to hear this. If you are a believer in Christ, you should expect discipline from the Lord. You should expect it. And you should embrace it. And we'll see what this leads us to. But we're going to continue in these categories. So first we saw the theological. You are going to be disciplined for your sin. David is being disciplined for his sin. Second category is that there are physical consequences for sin. There are physical consequences for sin. Sin's consequences carry a physical reality. Why? Because we are holistic beings, meaning that God has created us so that we are both flesh and spirit, both inner man and outer man. You can think of Galatians 5. You can go there later um, today and see the struggle that is present between our flesh and the spirit, this war that's happening. Romans talks about it a lot, about the renewal of your mind and this fight that's happening. But we are holistic people, which means our sin actually can have physical consequences. And where do we see that? Well, we begin to see it in the graphic language that David talks about. For your arrows have sunk into me and your hand has come down on me. Think about that for a moment. The grotesque nature 
of, of David saying, your arrows have literally sunk into my flesh. I heard someone say this, and I think this is a good depiction to kind of think about this in your mind. The Holy Spirit is the archer. And as he lets go of that arrow, that arrow is the law of God. And that law of God pierces your flesh and does not allow you to continue in sin, but it hurts. There is pain. You actually feel this reality, this physical reality of your sin. And that is a grace of God that we would have this sucked down into us. And as we're in this idea of penitential psalms, Psalm 32, you'll remember, because I know you guys remember that from like four or five, six months ago, just keenly in your mind, right? Um, That Psalm 32 was, we actually titled that the heavy hand of blessing, right? God's heavy hand that presses down on us and we can feel it. And so this is like the return of the heavy hand of God right? The return of his hand coming down on David. He can feel it. And then we see in verses three and seven, this repetition of this idea of soundness. There is no soundness in my flesh. This idea of being sound means that that the body is doing well. There's no um, hurt or decay in a body. It It is functioning in the way it should. And David's saying, there's none of that. I don't have soundness in my flesh. I can actually feel this damage and decay in my body. And we, we understand that we are in the Psalms. So we understand that this is poetic language, right? I don't actually think David is writing this Psalm with an arrow in his side. Right? I, don't, I don't think he's, he's having that experience, but he is certainly feeling the pain of his sin. The heavy hand of God has come down so heavily on him that he's having this physical reaction because God is indignant with his sin. I love that in verse three. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. This almost looks like David's pointing at him saying, God, why are you letting this happen to me? But then he follows it up with, there is no health in my bones because of my sin. So this idea of him feeling crushed we, we get, again, graphic language in verse 5. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I don't think David has an infection in a cut that is oozing, festering, stinking, but I think he's giving us poetic language to see the vileness of sin and the effect that it can have on our actual physical Body. It's gotten so bad for David that it's literally raised over his head. Go back this afternoon and read Ezra 9, 6 and see the same reality of how sin just keeps stacking and stacking over someone and it can create a heaviness on them. David says he is feeble and crushed and he groans. And this groaning is actually the language of a lion roaring. Okay, so it is this groaning in his heart. His heart throbs is the language he uses, or maybe we can translate it as palpitates, right? And, and here's my kind of, my application of this, or maybe not application, but maybe a, a description. If you're, if you're not following with the fact that sin has a physical reality, have you never been anxious over your sin? As you have sinned and you literally feel your heart start to be rapidly beating in your chest, 
either before you sin or after it. Have you not had that feeling before? Does David not give words to our actual experiences of the consequences of sin in our life? Friends, just this week, I have felt the consequences of this. As I have felt down and low over conflict that my wife, praise God, have reconciled, okay? Over conflict that we had. Have you not felt this too? When you maybe are in an argument with somebody and the next time you see them, you have a physical reaction of like, oh, I can't talk to them. I need to go the other way. I'm not ready yet, you know? And your heart starts beating really quick because maybe you guys didn't talk to each other very nicely the last time you talked to each other. Or, or maybe you realized, oh, I shouldn't have said that. And you're working up the courage to confess that sin to that person. So you avoid them because your heart is beating within your chest. Yes, we are physical beings. We have reactions. Our spirit interacts with our flesh and our flesh interacts with our spirit. There are certainly physical consequences to sin. David is literally feeling pain in his body. The third category is spiritual. There are spiritual consequences to our sin. I love these words in verse 9. David says, O Lord, all my longing is before you. My sighing is not hidden from you. David expands or expounds on his longing. Another word for his longings are his desires. His desires are laid bare before the Lord who is omniscient. He's all-knowing. God knows the desires of David's heart. That the groaning and the desires for David are for his restoration. This hope for restoration is well known by the Lord. And David groans because there are spiritual consequences for our sin. Joel, as he prayed for us this morning in his prayer of confession, there's a reality when we are in sin that our heart actually cools to the Lord. That there is a seemingly disconnectedness between us and God. Have you not felt that before? God doesn't seem as rich as he had before. You're not as hungry to get into your word. Is it not maybe that there is sin that needs to be confessed? Now, with this reality, I have to immediately bring up kind of the two, um, the two ways that you can fall off the side of the horse here when there are spiritual consequences. You can, you can go so far to say every time anything ever happens spiritually, you're like, oh, there's some sort of sin I haven't confessed, and you're racking your brain, and there's nothing there. And so we don't want to go that far over, although I, I'm telling you, you do need to be introspective, but it's not something that you have to spend years in a monastery trying to figure out. And the other side of it is where someone will say, I'm going to lose my my salvation because of this sin. Now, I think Romans 8 is a good place to go. There are so many, and as we look forward, as we anticipate the work that will be done on the cross, um, as we think of the actual days coming up in um, Good Friday and in Easter, we understand that our justification is secure. So Romans 8, verses 3 through 4, really quickly. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. 
by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Meaning Christ has done it. Our salvation, our justification are not wrapped up in our works, but are wrapped up in Christ. That is not something that can be taken away from us if we are in Christ. That's not our work, that is His. However, that does not mean that sin does not affect our relationship with God. It does not affect our position with God, but it affects our experience of Him. God can seem distant and our love cooled when we continue in our sin. Because, friends, there is consequence for sin. So we've talked about the consequences that are theological. We've talked about the consequences that are physical. We've talked about the consequences that are spiritual. Yet there is still another consequence, social. Finally, we see that sin has even social consequences. David's friends, his companions, his family stood far off because of the consequences for his sin. Our sin has effects even on how we socially interact with others. Because of your sin, your relationships with people might be broken. You might not be able to do the things you used to do. You might not be able to serve in the ways that you used to serve. None of these actions mean that you are not forgiven in Christ, but it does mean that sin has consequences. And so we now leave verses 1 through 12 as we have surveyed the consequences of sin and we go into David's response. How does David respond amidst the theological Amidst the physical, the spiritual, and the social consequences for sin, he is broken. He is feeling distant from God. People are leaving him and he's being disciplined. What does he do? But I am like a deaf man, I do not hear. Like a mute man who does not open his mouth, I have become like a man who does not hear and in whose mouth are no rebukes. But for you, O Lord, do I wait. It is you, O Lord, my God, who will answer. David now patiently waits before the Lord. Even amidst people speaking treachery, and meditating on his demise all the day long, people who are jumping on the fact that he's being disciplined, trying to act on that, David waits. We sang that today, right? I will wait for you. I will wait for you. Here comes that application again, dear Grace Covenant Church. Have we not heard this already in the Psalms again and again that we are to wait on the Lord? Did not Joel preach this to us a few weeks back in 1 Samuel and the reality of waiting upon the Lord and how starkly distinct has it been to see how Saul waits or lack thereof and how David waits. 
Right? Saul says, well, let me erect this, um, uh, te- not temple, but let me erect this altar. Let me do these things. Let me pray these prayers. Let me do this stuff. Let me make these oaths. He rushes into everything headlong and full of folly because he's not waiting upon the Lord. And then we get David. Then we get this type of Christ who we see waits on God. Even in his discipline, he's being rebuked and he is waiting. So we have to figure out why and how. And I love this. I love as we study this and as we look at verse 15, we're going to see just the way that David is going to describe God. But before we do that, I want you to see the fact that this is anticipatory. David is anticipating something. David, as he's going to describe who God is, is anticipating the forgiveness of God because of being in covenant with him. So he chooses his words really carefully, okay? In fact, in this verse, we see that David chooses three different names for God. He begins with the covenantal name of God in which we started this song. For Yahweh... I will wait. David is saying he will wait for God who reached down and made a covenant with him. The God of the universe who made a covenant with David. I I want you to just let that sink in for a minute. He's saying, I'm going to wait for God. And when we put it like that, when we think about who God is, any other type of application here seems arbitrary. What else would David do? What else is David going to do in this situation? How else is David going to possibly muster up on his own strength or his own plan? How is he going to do something that will take away his pain or make it subside, I wonder? Well, he can't. Whereas Saul would have said, let me do these things. David's saying, I'm going to wait on Yahweh. So David waits for him. Because it is him, our second word here for God. O Lord, you'll see it looks different, right? It's not in all caps. And that's the Hebrew word for Adon. Or in the Greek translation, we get Adonai. So we see Adon. And what does this mean? It means uh, David's master, his God, okay? His Lord and his master, the one who has control over him. And then he says, his God. That's the third use of the word God here and the third word, which is Elohim, the originator and ruler of the universe. So we have this covenantal Lord and master, originator of the universe. I want to wait for that guy too. As David says, I will wait for you. Why? Because you'll answer me. All other application seems ridiculous. Taking the time to understand the God that we are praying to in our times of discipline or suffering really puts things into the right context. We so desperately want things to stop hurting. When we have sinned, we realize that we have offended a holy God or we've offended a friend 
or a spouse. We want so desperately for things to go back to normal so we don't have to feel the hurt or the consequences of our sin that we have caused. But realizing that the originator of the universe and its ruler, who is our master, and if we are in Christ, is our covenantal God, might have a reason for this pain. This is a good reason for us to wait on him because he will answer our prayers. But that's not where David ends. This waiting sets the groundwork for our next application, which is David's confession of sin. This leads us to David's next point, his confession. David who says he's about ready to fall because his pain is ever before him. Or for a lack of a better word, David is ready to die. Now he's ready to confess his sin. The sin which he said earlier had stacked above his head. The sin which he said earlier not only had stacked above his head, but had felt like an arrow had plunged into his hide. The sin that now is festering, this sin he is ready to confess to God. So verse 18, we read, I confess my iniquity. I confess my sin. I am sorry for my sin. Now, I live in a house with six people. I don't know if you guys have this experience or not, but I hear the words, I am sorry, a lot. A lot of the times it comes out of my mouth, and then, you know, the three little people that can talk, that happens out of their mouth too. My wife as well, the youngest can't say that yet, but it'll happen, right? And you hear this again and again every day. I'm sorry, we try to teach our kids to repent, seek forgiveness from each other. Me and my wife try to show that to our kids. But you hear, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And sometimes this phrase, we can look at it and it can seem to lack maybe the depth that we were hoping for, right? I'm sorry, okay. That's the way I say it, no. Um, but, but David, as he is Saying in verse 18 here, he says, I confess my iniquity, I am sorry. It's not this half-hearted, I am sorry, let's just get it over with. No, the Hebrew word, let's dive into the Hebrew word for this. It means to be anxious over, concerned with, dreadful of, or fearful. David is ready to confess his iniquity because he has realized just how awful it is. It is causing him anxiety. He is dreading the fact that he has sinned, sinned against the covenantal Lord and Master of, originator of the ruler of the universe, and for good reason. He's horrified of his sin. He's broken over it. I wonder if we ever think of our sin in the same way. Are we actually dreadful? Are we actually dreading the consequences of our sin? Or as the New American Standard Version says, I am full of anxiety because of my sin. David has seen in Psalm 6 and 32 so far, and now in 38 has been a prime example of a contrite heart. 
A heart that is aware of its sinfulness and its need to repent before a holy God. David waits because he knows God will answer him and he confesses. God can see it all anyways. There's no use in hiding it. And then David ends with a petition. After the confession, David is ready to complete the psalm with a petition. In his prayer to God, he seeks confirmation of his forgiveness, a restored relationship with God, and a quick response to help him and save him from his pain and, and from his enemies. We read, do not forsake me, O Lord. O my God, be not far from me. Make haste to help me. O Lord, my salvation. David is anticipating God's forgiveness, but he's also seeking confirmation of it in his prayer. I'm waiting on you, God. I trust you. I confess my sin. Now, God, please, don't forsake me. And what word does he use for God again? It's that covenantal name of God. Wonder why he uses that with the same word forsake. It's because he's in a covenant with God and he's saying, Lord, remember the covenant. Remember the covenant you made with me. Don't forsake me. Don't leave me. Don't consume me in your anger and wrath. Do not forsake me, O God. And then he uses, oh my God, he uses Elohim. Be not far from me. I wonder why he's saying, be not far from me. Because this originator and ruler of the universe, the one that Israel calls upon, the one that made a covenant with Israel and loves Israel, he calls upon them, be not far from me. He wants that relationship with the Lord restored. Make haste to help me, O Lord. Okay, now we're back to Adon. We're back to his Lord and Master. Reaching out to his Lord and Master. Make haste. I know you're the Lord and Master of the universe. You can do all things. Make haste to help me. Save me from those who want to destroy me. Save me from my own pain that I feel like will consume me. Please help. He's seeking the restoration of the theological, the physical, the spiritual, and the social consequences of his sin. He calls upon Yahweh not to forget. He calls upon the originator of the universe, the God of Israel, to be close to him. And he calls to his Lord and Master to help him and save him. Now, unlike Psalm 6, which is very similar to this psalm, we end here. And as we go through Psalm 39 and Psalm 40, we're going to see the progression, the fulfillment of the anticipation, but we don't have that here. We just have the anticipation from David that God will forgive him. So now as we come to the conclusion of this psalm, I want us to think about the anticipatory nature of this psalm. How David, suffering from the consequences of his sin, anticipated the forgiveness of the covenantal God. Friends, we too anticipate something as we read this psalm. I've yet to make mention of it, although it's been talked about already today. This Sunday, Palm Sunday, 
is full of anticipation. Not only from us right now as we anticipate what work was done, what beautiful work was done, but the Hebrew people, the Israelites, the Jews, they anticipated. They anticipated this day as Christ rode in on the back of a colt. As palm branches were laid on the ground or whatever foliage was around, as they laid it on the ground and as they cried, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, in hopes that the warrior king was entering Jerusalem to make things right and establish the kingdom on earth. They anticipated the yoke breaking from the Romans and them being this nation that was ruled on earth by their king on the throne. They anticipated what would be done. And as Joel said in his prayer, they were then the people just a few days later crying, crucify him when their anticipation was not met, when their desires were not met. But we know the anticipation being this side of redemptive history that happened. We know the anticipation that Christ entered Jerusalem knowing his mission, the mission that he would be crucified and die on a cross. And on the cross, he would take away what? He would take away God's indignation for sin. God's holy anger and wrath in verses 1 and 2 that we heard about. God's hand would come down heavy upon the Christ. And Christ would look longingly to the Father and sigh for Him. He would cry out, Why have you forsaken me? His friends would abandon Him. His family would stand far off. And He would die on that cross for all the iniquity of all people who would call him Adon, who would call him Lord. He would raise from the dead three days later, conquering death and sin. And after those 40 days, he would ascend to the right hand of God where he is ruling and reigning now. And because of Christ's work on the cross, if we are in him we anticipate the forgiveness of God. We can, amidst the consequences of our sin that we will be disciplined for, we can know that our God, He will still answer us. We can feel the weight of our sin and dread its conclusions. We can wait in that Reality, and we can confess our sin knowing that God will hear us because of Christ's work, and we can anticipate and know that God will forgive us of our sins. It is because of the work of Christ that we can actually pray Psalm 38, knowing that our Lord will never leave us or forsake us, that God will never be far from us, and that he is always willing to help us because he has provided salvation in Christ. Oh, friends, would you use Psalm 38? Would you use the word of God to pray those prayers when you do not have the words to say? And then as we now will transition to singing to our God, would you sing these words knowing that you can be forgiven? I will not boast in anything. No gifts, nor power, 
nor wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer, but this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. Let's pray. Oh God, our God, we sin and we sin and we sin. And our iniquities go over our head. They are like a heavy burden that weighs us down and pins us to the ground as we lie prostrate. Father God, we ask now that you would forgive us those sins. That by the blood of Christ, we would know that we are forgiven and that we are children of God. God, that is a promise that you give us in your word as we anticipate and as we know the forgiveness of our sins. Father, I pray for those this morning who are not in Christ, that their anticipation is not one that, we can, that they can boast in Christ. As they boast in themselves, the antip- anticipation they should have is the dread, is the anxiety, is the fear of the consequence of their sin which is an eternity separated from you and being punished for those sins. Father, may they see the folly of their ways. May they feel the weight and pain of sin and may they come to the only one who can forgive them their sins, Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray this in his name. Amen.